The passage on which the teaching is based this morning is uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and you can turn there with me either in your Bible or in your worship guide. If you're able, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We come to the first miracle in John's gospel, or the first of what he will refer to as signs. Interestingly, the other gospel writers... Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to refer to Jesus' miracles as, as powers, as, as um, demonstrations of his authority in that fashion. But John's gospel refers to them as signs. And this is rather fitting because uh, John is such a symbolic book. John, John works hard to draw the rich symbolism of what Jesus is doing in the midst of his ministry and uh, indeed begins uh, with this story which is strongly symbolic. Jesus has just recruited his first disciples. We're not very far into our sermon series on the Gospel of John. And at the very very beginning of chapter 1, we saw that John makes profound theological statements about Jesus. And then he proceeds into a section in which Jesus recruits his first five disciples. You're almost left with a question, okay, okay, John, you've said some profound things about Jesus and who he is, but so what? And here, Jesus, John begins to open up the life of Jesus and his significance through this remarkable uh, sign that takes place. And if you think about it for a moment, uh, here Jesus is recruiting his first five disciples. You think, well, what, what, would, what would you expect Jesus to do with his first five recruits? You know, maybe a tutorial on what it means to love him, or a training on how to cast out demons, or a prayer retreat in the wilderness. But instead, Jesus takes the disciples to a party. They end up at a wedding feast, which is, which is pretty much as big as you can get in the ancient world. It was an event for the community. It was an event for the family where everyone would gather and celebrate with reckless abandon the, the union of two lives. And to be frank, that challenges me a little bit. You know, I tend to be a very um, a, a rule-oriented guy and and oriented by duty, and here Jesus shows up, and he goes to a party. And this is how John wants us to have the first encounter of what Jesus is about. 
And that challenges me to say, do I really know? You know, it's, it's, it seems pretty unlikely that Jesus just shows up to do the miracle. So we have to imagine that Jesus is there laughing and dancing and fellowshipping with the people with whom he's been invited. And it's that Jesus that gives us a picture of joy. And as we begin to just consider the story at the very outset, he's also showing up and turns water into wine to make sure that this party keeps going. So Jesus who brings joy. Joy is an element that I think many of us are desperately lacking because we've said that we're focusing on the presence of Jesus throughout this sermon series. And even though we think that we, we experience the presence of Jesus I find that joy is a short commodity in most people's lives. There isn't a deep, resounding fulfillment and satisfaction from knowing the presence of Christ. And yet here is a picture of complete joy. Jean Venier is a commentator on um, the Gospel of John. One among many is a neat individual. He started the L'Arche Communities. Uh, which are communities in which people go to live and care full-time for adults who are mentally handicapped. We'll come back to a story he tells at the end, but he writes right at the beginning, being challenged by the notion of this story, aren't many of us caught up in, a weary, in our weary lives of work, needing to find the stimulation of alcohol and the distraction of television to help us forget the dreariness of life when we return home? Water is dailiness. But wine is for rejoicing. If we have seen religion as something dreary, we will have difficulty imagining Jesus changing dreariness into fullness of joy. Aren't we all seeking this miracle? Behind this event in Cana, Jesus is offering in the form of a symbol a transformation from the judgery of duty to a new passion of love. Water is for dailiness. Wine is for rejoicing. Do you know the Son of Man who turns water into wine. Do you know that rejoicing? How do we experience it more fully? Well, as we begin to to jump into the story, one of the things you really have to realize is how, how amazingly full and richly symbolic it is. This isn't just a neat parlor trick in which Jesus turns water into wine. It is, it is um, loaded with imagery that comes from the Old Testament and has been long the language of Israel, uh, really to get a notion of what's going on in the midst of the story. Um, I mean, imagine someone who had been, who had long been critical of greed in America. And he shows up in, um, in DC and he says, uh, the problem with America is greed. And he grips a bunch of quarters and turns them into sand. Well, people wouldn't say, oh, that's just a really neat, neat trick, turning metal into sand. How did you do that? People would understand the symbolism. Of, he's saying here, this money, this thing that you love, isn't really worth anything. It's, a, it's not going to do anything more for you than sand will. And you would understand that symbolism. And so when Jesus shows up to a wedding feast and turns water into wine, it's that depth of symbolism that we have to make sure we're understanding in the context of what's happening. See, if we go back to the Old Testament, God is often talking about Israel as his bride. And when he, when he fixes things, when he comes to heal things and make them uh, move forward in the way that he wants them to, he talks about, he talks in wedding imagery. And, and he, the, bri- the bridegroom coming to his people, the bride. 
and that uh, wedding taking place in an appropriate way in which healing happens. So in Isaiah, the prophet writes, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And again, in chapter 62, You shall no more be termed forsaken, for your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So when John is sitting down and decides... You know, he's got many things to choose from. He says openly in his gospel, listen, I couldn't record everything Jesus did. It would be too long. So he has to make decisions of what's going to go in and what's not. And of course, guided by the Holy Spirit, he latches on to the miracle at Cana. Why is this important and so significant to him? Well, Jesus showing up at a wedding feast is no small portion of symbolism. There's, there's much that's being communicated uh, that Jesus shows up there. And I want us to consider three basic aspects to the story. As we see, in part, this fulfillment and this pointing forward of where, where the story has been going all along, where the Old Testament has looked forward and said, this is what's going to happen, a great wedding feast. And those three points are, number one, joy inhibited. Number two, joy revealed. And uh, number three, uh, living out of joy. Joy revealed, or I'm sorry, number one is joy inhibited, then joy revealed, and lastly, uh, living out of joy. So as we get into the story, the problem is quickly portrayed. There's a wedding going on, everyone's having a good time, presumably, uh, but they're out of wine. And as you can imagine, when you're out of wine, you're out of party, at a wedding feast. And there may be some... Uh, Social faux pas going on as well in the midst of this. Historians tell us that in the ancient world, the amount of wine that you had to drink at a wedding feast was dependent on the gifts that the people brought. It was, uh, in some sense, BYO. And so uh, Jesus and his disciples show up to the feast, but they Jesus and his disciples lived in poverty. And so they may have shown up to the feast not bearing anything, and Mary might have felt a particular weight in terms of They're out of wine. We haven't helped this situation do something. Which raises all kinds of questions. Mary, how do you know Jesus can do something? What has he done in the past that gives you this expectation? Lots of fun questions generated that we can't answer. And we don't know exactly what's going on, but this may be the situation which lends a little bit of, oh, okay, this is a little bit more serious. Jesus and his mother, their family reputation is involved. And so she goes and asks him to do something. And Jesus is reluctant. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Right, Boys and girls, is that how you talk to your mother? Woman, what do you have to do with me? Or what do I have to do with you? I would not advise it. Right, boys and girls, it seems like Jesus is being a little disrespectful. What's going on? Well... Apparently, this is a way, it's not as disrespectful as it sounds to us. It's a way of saying, um, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. But then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus 
has come not to fulfill his mother's will, not to please her, but to fulfill his father's will. And it has not been dictated that this is his time, and so he's reluctant to participate. And that's really important because if Jesus started heeding the desires of any earthly person, even his mother, right, then his, his message, his agenda would be corrupted. He would be playing favorites or be accused of nepotism. He would favor his family, perhaps. And so his agenda must be kept pure. But oddly, um, and there's really no one knows exactly what's going on. Mary seems uninterested in Jesus' response. She simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to. Yeah, you know, what she, okay, Jesus, you can say whatever you want, but I'm your mother and you're going to do something here. And who, who knows, but she, she doesn't seem to be very persuaded. And Jesus doesn't seem to necessarily be that serious because he, even though saying my hour has not yet come, he's going to very quickly proceed to remedy the situation in a miraculous fashion. So, it's exactly what's going on in this exchange between Jesus and his mother is a little bit confusing. I think it's hard to access what is actually being exchanged between the two of them because the story continues to unfold in ways that are surprising and a little bit different in terms of what they have relayed to each other. And so the problem at hand, right, why are we talking about joy inhibited? It's because a party has been going on and now there is no wine for the party to go on. A wedding feast is going to come to an end unless Jesus does something miraculous. But if we take a step back and remember how symbolic John is, right? The whole story of God's redemption is, yes, he intended for something great, a party to happen with his creation, which was thwarted. And the story of Israel has become more and more sad to the extent that as you enter the time of Jesus, essentially the party has come to an end. God's spirit has departed. The people are in a terrible place. And if anything is going to continue, if life is going to continue, if joy is going to be had, then God has to do something decisive. You need to start to think in terms of, for the wedding feast to go forward, wine has to be provided for Redemption to occur for God's story with his people to go forward. Yes, new wine will have to be provided, but it's wine in the sense that the New Testament speaks of it. It's the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is the wine that will make the story go forward. That's what's necessary for the celebration to continue. The joy has been inhibited because of Israel's unfaithfulness their lack of willingness to be who they were called to be, but also the inadequacy when sin has entered the world of dealing with that sin. And you come to this place where Jesus has to do something to make things move forward at this this feast. And we, at the same time, we know that at the end of the story, in Revelation, uh, it's pictured as the wedding feast of the Lamb. So how do we get to that wedding feast? Jesus has to make sure that that party will actually happen. And we can't help but think of his words. Uh, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. This new wine over which the master of the feast will rave. It's the new wine of the new covenant that Jesus brings. And it ensures, indeed, that something will happen. It can't be put into old wineskins. Well, how is all this joy revealed? This joy of new wine. 
How does Jesus uh, intercede? Jesus commands that stick six stone jars that are for uh, purification rites and Jewish washing. Stone can't be corrupted. Uh, earthen jars can be. So stone jars were set aside and made for this purpose. Pretty big jars holding substantial amounts of water that they're all to be filled, uh, no small feet. And as uh, the water is taken to the uh, master of the feast for tasting, somewhere in between there is a miraculous change of the water into wine, and Jesus ensures that the joy of the wedding feast may continue, that that party might go on. What a remarkable picture. Jesus coming and ensuring that the the joy of his people in this small case of a wedding may go forward, which is representative, of course, of the great story of redemption. I think we tend to think sometimes of Jesus as far more oriented by duty and obligation and a good bit of drudgery, which you know I suggested in the beginning. As you think about Jesus, most of you go to a place of thinking, okay, what do I need to do? Rather than celebrating his presence, rather than celebrating the one who actually arrives and brings, turns water into wine, not based on some prerequisite, not as a reward for something someone has done, but to allow joy to pour out. Many of us uh, think about life in the um, in terms of what is my favorite YouTube video of all time. In fact, it, the year it came out, it won the best Oscar for YouTube video, and it was entitled um, True Fit Facts About the Angler Fish. And you may have seen this great work of art. It is a small fact, piece of facts about the anglerfish, which I wasn't familiar with until I watched the video. The anglerfish is, um, is probably the ugliest fish that you have ever seen. Uh, particularly the, the female anglerfish comes in, as the video says, an entire rainbow of ugly. And the male anglerfish is uh, incredibly small by comparison, really tiny. Looks, looks like a baby compared to the female anglerfish. And the role of the male anglerfish is um, to bite onto the female anglerfish, right? And once he's attached himself, he begins to digest his face, so that he's permanently sealed to the female anglerfish, after which his body atrophies, and he loses his heart and his lungs and his digestive tract, and then simply becomes a repository of seed for the female anglerfish. Now, some of you feel like that is your life. (laughs) right? Male or female aside, you exist to give life to other people, and they suck the life out of you, and you atrophy and are just waiting to die, right? You laugh, and some of you think, that kind of describes my relationship with Jesus. He's, he's come to me, yeah, I believe he saved me, I get to go to heaven someday, but on a day-in and day-out basis, he just requires things of me. And part of you really wants to know the Jesus who shows up and turns water into wine. It's a different Jesus than the one who you feel sucks you dry. We were, uh, we were sitting on the edge of the pool uh, just last night. Jennifer and I were sitting there chatting, and Molly and Lewis were swimming. And, of course, the, the request came, uh, began to come and roll in, Daddy, will you please get into the pool? 
And this will happen over and over and over again as Jennifer and I try to have a conversation. And eventually, though, yeah, I'd love to get into the pool. And I get into the pool and to squeals of delight, right? Joy being just poured out because now the situation in the pool has changed, right? Uh, people are going to be thrown. People are going to uh, face danger that they did not perceive before. And I am one of the greatest Marco Polers, Polo players in the world, boys and girls. I meddled in it in another time, and uh, I'm devastating. So all of this is about to happen, and the kids are, of course, incredibly excited, and they just experience joy by virtue of their father getting in the pool to play with them. And my decision is not dictated by, well, let's see what merits you have racked up today, boys and girls, to see if you are worthy for me to get in the pool and play with you. That's not the gist. I delight in them in jumping into the pool. And we have to remember, so it is with our father, right? that he jumps into the pool, a great expense to himself, out of joy in us, so that we might delight in him. Because delighting in him is the best thing for us. It is the most fulfilling thing for us. It's that joy that we forget that Jesus, you know, Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus enters in to the world because it's fit that he would learn obedience through suffering. Yet willing to do this, why? Because Hebrews 12 says he does it for the joy that was set before him, which was winning his bride. The bridegroom is faithful to enter into the world in the incarnation that we might be redeemed. And how can we not take joy in that? That our wedding feast has actually begun. The bridegroom has come, and yes, the marriage is not consummated yet. There is a great feast to be had down the road. But what joy is there in that present reality? Well, what is the result of this joy? In verse 11... John says that this was the first of Jesus' signs, and through it, he manifested his glory. And as a result of manifesting his glory, the disciples believed. The disciples, I think, are coming to believe again, not simply because, amazing, this guy turns water into wine, but Jesus comes and he says, listen, um, comes to a wedding feast, which is so richly symbolic, and says, yes, I'm going to keep this going. But what I'm doing is I'm taking these stone jars that were filled with water and they were intended for ritual purification. Formerly, that's what you thought cleansed you. And I'm actually going to fill them with wine. And you're going to understand down the road that the wine represents my blood and it offers a cleansing that you could not possibly have hoped to have through water and stone jars. My cleansing will go to the core and will make you truly clean and will restore your relationship with God. And yes, this is what is necessary for the real wedding celebration to happen when bride and bridegroom are joined together. And it should result in the glory of Jesus and in uh, our belief. Jesus will tell the story of another wedding feast during the course of his ministry. It's a story of a king who uh, his son is getting married. And so he sends out invitations, and the time for the feast comes. He sends his servants, he says, bring everybody in, and the servants don't want to come. And so uh, the king sends the servants out again and says, listen, bring them. It's time for the wedding feast to take place. And they say, 
the, the, the story in Matthew goes that some return to their business or some are distracted by another thing, but they don't come to the wedding feast. And, and then they get frustrated, the people, and they, um, they abuse and ultimately kill the servants who are sent with the message. And so the king goes out and kills them and says, fine, this wedding feast is going to happen. Go to the byways. Go to where the, the poor people and the criminals hang out and invite them, and the wedding feast will be filled up. And indeed, those are the people who are come, who come and who receive God's grace, who are actually sitting down at the marriage feast with Him. And so as we're confronted with, with this picture of Jesus who keeps a party going, that dispenses joy and water becoming wine, but ultimately the joy of the new covenant, who are you in that story? The person who says, yeah, I'll come when I'm ready, after I've taken care of my business, after I've dealt with what's on my plate. Or are you so eager that you run to the wedding feast that is being had, that is foreshadowed? The book of Revelation says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Are you blessed? Are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? And if you believe that you are, does that give you joy? Do you know the joy that is embodied in the story of Jesus showing up to a wedding feast? Do you know the joy of being bound for that wedding day? Jean uh, Venier, the man who started L'Arche, tells a story uh, that they had eventually opened up a, a house, a L'Arche community in Kerala, India. A place, again, to care for adults who are mentally handicapped. And there was one individual, we'll call him Tommy, who came into the community and began to live there and grow and be in community. And he went back one day to see his family. And he was uh, grabbing them all and, and smiling ear to ear, saying, today is my wedding day. And they thought, well, okay, Tommy, very good. We're happy for you thinking that he had no notion of what he was talking about. And so Tommy went back to the community that day, and he got back, and he did some group sessions. And and with joy, he said, today is my wedding day. And later on, he was tired and not feeling well, and he went and laid down and died later that night of a massive heart attack. And it indeed was his wedding day. Do you know that kind of joy? That even in the midst of death that we grieve and mourn the loss of someone, we also say for the believer, there's much to be celebrated here. It was their wedding day. And you look forward to it with a sense that you understand the joy that's represented in the story. For it, let's give thanks. Our God and King, we thank you uh, that the story of your creation is a story of a wedding feast that runs out of wine unless you had interceded. So we thank you for your intercession and we thank you that not only in this beautiful picture of your grace 
and of your love and of the joy that you pour out, um, you give us a picture of something much greater. That ultimately the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we are united and married to Jesus, our bridegroom, that that is guaranteed in the wine that is the shed blood of Jesus' own body. For this we give you thanks and praise. And I pray for each of us that we would go forth from here this week filled up with that joy. Father, so many things compete for it, so many things clouded out. Let us remember that you are the one who turns water into wine. And it is that superabundance that you promise, both now and in our future. Praise be to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.